0: E.T.F. Prime is hosted by Nate Geraci, president of investment advisory firm, the E.T.F. Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in E.T.F.s involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Critical minerals like lithium, copper, uranium, and nickel are in high demand and short supply, but they're critical to the accelerating transition to cleaner energy. Find out how Sprott's suite of energy transition ETFs can help you access a potentially powerful opportunity. Visit SprottETFs.com to learn more. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Asset allocation or diversification does not guarantee investment returns and does not eliminate the risk of loss. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein from Sprott Asset Management USA Inc., Sprott Asset Management LP, Sprott Inc., or any other spot, entity, or affiliate. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of writing. Still, no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability. In respect of any error or omission is accepted. The information provided is general in nature and is provided with the understanding that it may not be relied upon as nor considered to be the rendering of tax, legal, accounting, or professional advice. Listeners should consult their own accountants and or lawyers for advice on their specific circumstances before taking any action. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, this week, it's
1: a who's who from the ETF industry Joining me will be Ben Slaven, Global Head of ETFs at BNY Mellon Asset Servicing. And I'm telling you, there are only a handful of people who know the ETF space like Ben does. I, I've given his bio before, but Ben was involved with the creation of what turned into iShares, of course, the largest ETF issuer in the world. He then created the uh, ETF distribution platform at SEI Investments, from there, he went on to join ProShares and create their ETF platform. Uh, he was part of the founding team at WisdomTree, another top 10 provider. Uh, it, it's really ridiculous when you think about it, but he's now at BNY Mellon. And I love visiting with Ben because he truly has a front row seat to everything going on in ETFs right now. So we're going to discuss uh, what he's seeing, the biggest ETF trends, Uh, What he's hearing might be coming down the pike in terms of uh, ETF innovation. And I also want to ask him about this Vanguard share class patent that expires uh, in a couple of weeks. So it should be a great conversation. Also joining me this week will be Phil McInnes, chief investment strategist at Avantis, who, listen to this, they launched their first ETF less than four years ago. Already, they have over $21 billion in assets. It's a remarkable ETF success story. And as you start uh, digging into this, there's clearly something resonating here. I I mean, these are transparent, active ETFs, uh, very low cost. Uh, There's a quality and value and small cap tilt here. So I'm going to unpack all of this with Phil. And then I also want to talk about what appears to be a real initiative for Avantis, which is a fund-to-fund approach using ETFs. Uh, Avantis clearly sees some opportunity here, so uh, we'll discuss that as well. Now, to start this week, one of my favorite people covering ETFs, I have on the line with me Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. Uh, there was a pretty big milestone or anniversary in the ETF space last week,
0: so uh, let's talk about that now. Now we're joined by the experts at vetify a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community one relationship at a time.
2: There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs they can hold what are called total return swaps. expect the unexpected.
1: Laura, thanks for uh, joining me. how have you been?
2: I've been good. How are you?
1: Doing fantastic. It's a beautiful uh, sunny day here in Kansas City, like 65 degrees. I've got a lot of uh, hop in my step if you can't tell.
2: Uh, (laughs) I can hear it. I can hear it. It's a great day to celebrate RSP hitting 20 years. Isn't that cool? Well, well,
1: Let's talk about that. So yeah, for listeners, the first Smart Beta ETF, the Invesco S&P 500 Equal Weight ETF, RSP, That celebrated its 20-year anniversary, which, uh, Laura, that makes me feel really old, by the way. (laughs) But, you you know, I thought it'd be fun for us to just reflect on how far smart beta ETFs have come over the past 20 years and uh, perhaps talk about what might lie ahead for this category. And and I'm going to start you with this right off the bat. Do you actually like the term smart beta? What's the old joke? Uh, It's neither smart nor beta, right? Are, Are you surprised this term has lasted this long? (laughs)
2: <laughs> that's a good question i i you know i think that uh the name itself the term smart beta sort of disintegrates if you look too closely at it right the idea that uh the beta that you could you know smart beta uh implies the existence of dumb beta or that the beta that you're capturing with s p 500 exposure is somehow dumb it's uh, you know even though that S&P 500 exposure has led to the majority of portfolio gains over a time period. Don't look too closely at it, right? Um, But what I I think the staying power of the term smart beta, uh, you know, lands on is that, you know, we were trying to find this term in the industry to say that there's a... Maybe a better way to index beyond just market cap weighting, you know, a way to capture more return than just harnessing, you know, by harnessing different factors or market inefficiencies and so on. And so, I've always sort of leaned towards alternative weighted indexing or factor indexes, uh, you know, as a term. But maybe that's not quite as sexy when it comes to to the marketing. Um, I do think that the term smart beta, you know, it it certainly Struck a chord, it's catchy, and it became wildly popular to the point that it was sort of the victim of its own success, right? Um, Growth ETFs and value ETFs and dividend ETFs, these are all considered smart beta funds. And so if everything is a smart beta fund, then nothing is. And that's why you don't really hear, in my opinion, the term smart beta used in the same way all the time as it was 10 or 15 years ago. Um, because everything now is smart beta or could be considered smart beta.
1: By the way, I didn't uh, know this. I I actually wikipedia this, so hopefully it's accurate. But uh, (laughs) apparently the uh, the term smart beta was originally coined by Willis Tower Watson in 2006. So that's a uh, consulting firm, which means when RSP launched, uh, I guess it wasn't called a smart beta ETF at that time. So just a little uh, ETF fun fact for you. But I, I guess picking up on what you were just saying, Like at Vetify, do you have a specific definition for smart beta or is it what you said, you you know, just something other than market cap weighting? You know, is it anything that's that's rules based and non-market cap weighted or do you have some sort of other definition?
2: Well, that's exactly it. Right. The the, anything that is uh, rules based. Uh, that is indexed and is a non-market weighted, you know, alternative weighting strategy, uh, classifies a smart beta ETF. So kind of anything in this anything but market cap category. So, you know, a a blend of passive and active investing that adjusts for factors like size or momentum or volatility or so on. So um, to the point that I made earlier, you know, since RSP launched uh, the proto smart beta ETF, even the term wasn't around then. There are now t- over 1,200 ETFs that we are classifying in our system as smart beta. I just looked this up in Logically this morning. It's now at 1,225 ETFs that account for something like one trillion, over $1 trillion in assets under management. So roughly one out of every three U.S. listed exchange traded products classifies as a smart beta ETF now. One of out of every seven dollars is invested in one. So we've definitely come a long way since um, you know the idea that uh, equally weighting all the stocks in a portfolio was somehow a subversive act. You know, smart beta ETFs as a, as a category are including everything from these multi-factor ETFs that toggle between the various factors as the market signals change, or tactical opportunities ETFs, or buffer ETFs, and ESG bond ETFs, and everything in between. It's really become uh, a catch-all category, uh, not just for equities, but also for stocks, and real estate, and commodities. It's, it's everywhere. The idea of a better way to index uh, has, you know, that that idea is everywhere.
1: So, Laura, if you look at the current state of smart beta ETFs, what do you think about their overall health? You just mentioned, you know, being around a trillion dollars in assets. But if you look at AUM over the past few years, at least by my numbers, it's plateaued. Now, I, I know a big part of that is market performance, right? That, that's been a big driver. But do you think this space is healthy or is it plateauing? What, what do you see happening here?
2: I think it actually is fairly healthy, right? You, know, you, you pointed to one of the big factors as to why the AUM is uh, plateauing, and that's just because of how the markets have been for the past uh, 12 to, to 18 months. But the other aspect of it too is that investors are using factor ETFs or smart beta ETFs or however you want to call them um, as they might levers, right? So so they're using it, uh, they might pull down on the growth lever and then pull up on the value one or, uh, you know, so on and so forth. And doing that is going to cause a sort of reversion to the mean in assets, a kind of steady state as it happens. So yes. We are seeing some f- slowdown in flows, right? Over the past 12 months, we only saw about um, 130 odd billion go into smart beta ETFs, and I, I say only saw, but uh, you know that's that's uh, a slower pace than it has been in the past. Um, and some ETFs saw a lot of inflows, like your growth funds or your cheap Vanguard products, and so on. And others saw a lot of money coming out, right? So small cap value or rate hedging ETFs or or whatever you want to, you know, slice and dice. I do think that um, it has been interesting to see the uh, rise of active ETFs, both transparent and and semi-transparent. You hinted at Avantis uh, earlier at the top of the show, but, you know, we're seeing more and more of these familiar active fund managers coming to the space Everyone from Dimensional to Capital Group to Morgan Stanley. And these are really big, familiar mutual fund brands, but now they're in the ETF space. It's like a Cambrian explosion of active management right now. And we're seeing a real increase in money going towards active ETFs, um, both at the expense of market cap, but also at the expense of smart beta ETFs. So about $33 billion has gone into active products this year alone. Which is more than the thirty billion, uh, th- excuse me, thirty-three billion has gone into active, and thirty billion has gone into smart beta. So active is actually outpacing smart beta in terms of flows so far this year.
1: See, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because we've talked a lot about this recent momentum behind traditional active ETFs. I mean, active ETFs were a huge story last year, outsize inflows and, and new launches. You look this year, that certainly carried over. And the way that I've always pitched smart beta is as uh, active management without the human emotion or bias, right? And also typically at a lower cost. But to your point, you look at a firm like Avantis, who I'll be speaking with later, or uh, DFA, you mentioned Capital Group, J.P. Morgan. They're all offering active ETFs at a very low cost now. And if you look at how these products are being managed, I, I would say by and large, they're pretty disciplined in how they're selecting Holdings, And so I, I do wonder if they're stealing some of Smart Beta's mojo a, a little bit. And, and like, l- let's talk about Avanta specifically. So if you look at their approach, I, I think most would say it's extremely disciplined. It, it, it's rules-based overall. But they do leave themselves some wiggle room for discretion on things like the, uh, the, 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 the timing of trade execution. And, and so I guess my question for you would be, you know, could that be a better approach where – they are giving themselves some flexibility by using the active uh, structure, but they're still implementing a pretty disciplined strategy overall. Or do you think that that human emotion and bias can still come into play here to where maybe smart beta still has an advantage? Because, again, I think you bring up a really good point in terms of the rise of traditional active and in, in the way it's impacting smart beta
2: yeah it, it you raise such a good question and it's it's sort of an existential question I suppose about uh, you know smart beta and active and everything I, I you know I think the marketing may have gotten ahead of the potential here in smart beta um, you know indexes, we, we got to kind of go back to first principles. Indexes replicate markets. They don't beat them, right? You can slice and dice that market however you like. You can replicate whatever narrow sliver of the theme or factor or industry or whatever. But the index is never going to do better than the set of parameters it has and the methodology that defines that index. And I know that sounds pedantic, maybe, but it gets to the core of why I think... These two products can exist, or product types can exist side by side, right? You brought it up yourself. Active management has, it gives the manager that discretion to make, um, you know, those those uh, discretionary choices, for lack of a better term, about trading and timing and all of that. Um, you know, active choices in hope of beating the market indexes. No matter how the marketing has sliced them uh, or or portrayed them, that's just not something they can do. So I think there's a space in the portfolio to both replicate the market, however you define that market uh, mathematically, and also to beat it. So I I think they can exist side by side. Um, You know, the research shows, however that you have to be careful with active management, right? Time and time again, the studies show that although active strategies might be able to outperform, outperform markets in short term, over the long-term time horizons, that outperformance is just not sustained in the aggregate. When you look at all of you know active managers out there, there are exceptions to the rules, right? To that rule, there are pockets of outperformance, and there are certain managers that do do well uh, over the long haul. But if you give me a dollar and expect me to make it too, I think you know the, the 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 research would show that putting that dollar into the market. Is probably a safer bet than than trying to beat you know beat it using your own human emotion or human timing. So again, I think there's a role for both in portfolios, um, but you know they they serve two different roles in the portfolio. And you know this is like I said, one of those cases where maybe the marketing um, was Smart Beta's worst enemy because it was being promised to do more than it really could.
1: I think my only counter to that, and again, there's no question on traditional active, you bring in the human emotion and bias, but I would still argue that even though smart beta ETFs are tracking an index, you know, the vast majority of those, if not all, you're still taking some sort of active bet, right? You're doing something Mm -hmm. different. Than a plain vanilla index. Now, I like the discipline of smart beta. I like the typically lower cost compared to traditional active overall. Though again, uh, you know, active ETFs, the costs have come down there pretty uh, significantly. But I, I guess I would say for both, whether we're talking smart beta or active, you still have to be prepared for uh, periods of underperformance, right? Perhaps long periods of underperformance. And I do worry that on both of these, investors chase what's hot. That That's actually been my yeah. one complaint with Smart Beta for a long time, right? Just that uh, p- people chase what's been performing well, whatever, if we're talking factor-based ETFs or whatever. So I, I just think that that's, um, you know, I, I think both are active in that regard, if that makes sense.
2: I don't disagree with what you're saying. And maybe I'll layer in um, that, you know, when you're, regardless of whether it's an active manager or... An index methodology. Uh, there's a lot of trust that the investor has to uh, that that the investor is placing in that particular strategy. You really have to trust the active manager, or you have to trust the the math. Um, you know, and it just comes down to, I guess, your point earlier about: um, do you trust active management that incorporates human emotion and intuition and and choices, or do you trust um, active management that doesn't? So. That's an individual choice for every investor.
1: So looking forward again, I mean, t- 20 years since RSP launched, do you think that uh, smart beta ETFs can sort of maintain a comfortable home in the middle here where they are between plain vanilla indexing and, and, and traditional active management? Do you continue to see them carving out a uh, you know a nice slice here?
2: I I absolutely do, uh, and I will say though that I think the future of the term smart beta is going to continue to be one of obsolescence. But uh, I think the strategies themselves, uh, you know, far from obsolete, right? Investors are going to continue to flock to these strategies uh, that fall within this you know catch all of, of smart beta. You know, to bring it full circle, we talk about uh, RSP. RSP was one of the the hugest ETFs of the past year and change, right? Like just billions and billions of dollars went into this fund because it offered, you know, a better mousetrap, basically, on how to capture uh, exposure to S&P 500 stocks. And we talk about equal weighted ETFs, um, you know, not as a, a part of some broader corral of of strategies, but just as equal weighted ETFs, um, because that strategy stands on its own. It, it's, it works. So, um, you know, I, I think when so-called smart beta strategies uh, prove themselves to be, you know, to provide those better investment outcomes than market capitalization does, then they're going to continue to take share. Uh, market share from the spies and the IVVs and the QQQs of the world um, beyond that everything else is marketing and it's going to fall away dust in the proverbial wind
1: <laughs> well uh, I'll leave you with this just with RSP I, I actually pulled the uh, AUM so this thing has grown in the past three years from, uh, from about $10 billion in assets to now nearly $34 billion. And, again, obviously the market in, in this case has helped with that, but it's still pretty remarkable growth. But what's interesting is if you look right now to, to what you were alluding to, the S&P 500 is more uh, top-heavy than ever, right, at least with the top two holdings. If you look at Apple and Microsoft, those two alone account for 14% of the index. And even if you look at the top five holdings, they're still at about 22%. And so if you're an investor and you have concerns about that top heaviness, and that's a debate for another time, uh, right. clearly something like RSP and, and you know, looking at, more broadly at smart beta ETFs, there can be some value here if, if your thesis is uh, the, the index is too top heavy. But in any event, uh, Laura, great stuff is always another big ETF uh, milestone. I'm sure we'll be celebrating <laughs> more this year. But uh, thank you for joining me this week.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: That was Laura Krieger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. Are you looking for a passive ETF that isn't so passive? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF ticker TMFC is an index fund that's filled with high-conviction stock picks from real professional analysts. It puts the 100 top-rated stock picks from the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC into one simple low-cost ETF. For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit fooletfs.com slash ETFprime. That's fooletfs.com slash ETFprime.
1: My next guest is Ben Slavin, Global Head of ETFs at BNY Mellon Asset Servicing, who's one of the world's leading ETF service providers. And as I mentioned at the top, I'm not sure there are many people, if any, who know more about ETFs than uh, Ben, who's a humble guy, by the way. He he would never say that, but I will. And he's now on the line with me from New York. Ben, how have you been? Great having you back on the uh, podcast.
3: Great to be back, Nate, and good to see you survive the NFL Draft Circus rolling through Kansas City.
1: We did. It was uh, an amazing scene, though, just seeing, uh, you know, anytime you see your hometown on TV like that and the way it was uh, displayed, it was, uh, it, was, it was pretty neat. Uh, hey, before I forget, will you be down at uh, Inside ETFs later this month?
3: Um, I am not going to be able to make it this year, uh, unfortunately, but um, I am going to try to make it to Kansas City when my bears come to town in December. So maybe I will see you there.
1: Perfect. Then barbecue and beer on me.
4: Absolutely.
1: <laughs> All right. So, look, I have a uh, a number of interesting topics for us to dive into. And I, I want to start by actually picking up on a conversation I was just having with uh, Vetify's Laura Krieger on Smart Beta ETF. So I'm sure you're aware the Invesco S&P 500 Equal Weight ETF, ticker RSP, that turned 20 years old last week. And I, I guess I would just be interested in hearing your high-level thoughts on the Smart Beta category overall right now? Because we were talking about how uh, traditional active ETFs clearly have a lot of momentum, right? They've seen outsized inflows, uh, new launches. And we we talked about how they're maybe stealing a little bit of mojo from smart beta ETFs. So uh, overall, I mean, are you bullish or or bearish on smart beta ETFs moving forward? How how do you think about that category?
3: 20 years uh, seems like an ancient uh history in the (laughs) etf market so if you even go back a decade right the category has grown from around 195 billion to over 1.5 trillion just using the bloomberg definition of the category fixed income smart beta was barely um on the radar screen or in its infancy But my view here is really a a bullish one on the continued growth of the category. I mean, strategies will fall in and out of favor as they have over the past decade plus, and and will continue to do so. You know, we've seen, for example, quality, you know, factor-based ETFs take in money this year. ESG is in outflows. I know another topic you covered extensively on this podcast. But there's also quite a bit of room for innovation. So as investors get more comfortable, and the models that are being used get more sophisticated and be able to dissect each factor. Um, I think at the same time, uh, issuers are going to use uh, more innovative techniques, um, either because of the data that is available or um, really technology, specifically AI, right, to be able to construct these type of indexes or hopefully make them smarter, or at least that's what the issuers are trying to do. Now, AI got off to a bit of a rough start in ETFs, but my view is that we are in the very early innings there. Um, and I'm not saying we won't have a, you know, we'll have a chat GBT index, uh, you know, uh, in the immediate future, but with ETFs, you, you know, you kind of never know where, where things are gonna go. Um, but, you know, I think we're seeing applications, uh, you know, across the industry already, AI, um, based uh, technology starting to creep in. And I think that's probably where the smart beta category is, is likely to go.
1: It's interesting to hear you say that, because as I look at the smart beta ETF category overall, it, it just feels to me like everything's already spoken for. It, it's like, how many different ways can you do a a high quality value ETF or whatever? But it sounds like what you're saying, there's going to be ways to, to optimize those types of products, whether it's AI or, or otherwise, we can create, say, a better high-quality value ETF. Is that – am I hearing you correct on that?
3: Yeah, I, I think that is definitely one, um, you know, one space that I think will benefit from from the technology there. So, again, specifically AI. So, you know, sort of further optimization or, or making smart beta smarter. Um, I, hope, I hope I didn't just point a phrase there, um, not, <laughs> not necessarily uh, – uh, always a fan of this the smart beta moniker, but um, I think it's a good catch-all. Um, but, yeah, I, again, right now at BNY Mellon, we are working on using artificial intelligence, for example, to construct baskets based off rule sets um, that, you know, are constraints that our, you know, our issuer clients or the portfolio managers give us and, you know, using machine learning tools to build, you know, better, uh, custom baskets for fixed income ETFs, really to help, you know, facilitate uh, the, the growth of that market, you know, to help reduce costs, you know, latency, and generally just remove some friction and hopefully, you know, provide a better product to investors. So it, it's, it's happening, but it's early, early days.
1: All right. So let's move on here. And uh, Ben, I'm just going to jump around on some different topics this week. We'll see where we end up. But you offered a really good segue there because I thought I'd start by asking you about some of the recent ETF trends that you're seeing. I I always say you have a front row seat to everything occurring in the ETF space. I feel like you pretty much see and hear everything. Uh, And so what are maybe two or three topics that are dominating your conversations right now?
3: Yeah, we do have a front row seat. I mean, right now we're sitting with around uh, 1.5 trillion in ETF assets, and we've seen um, over a 1.8 trillion in notional order volume throw, you know, flow through our pipes in the last year. So we're seeing quite a bit. And obviously, we we cover a wide swath of the market and speak to issuers on a daily basis. Really, what they are most interested in is how to either enter the space for those asset managers who have not done so yet or really looking to ways to turn up the volume um, and do so quickly. So a lot of the discussions that we're having um, you know, are really around this concept of, should we buy, build, or partner? You know, I think on the buy side, I think certainly there is a demand for acquisition targets in the space, but the supply is still relatively low, or at least there's an imbalance there. So I do think we are gonna see some consolidation, but um, you know, I think uh, it will be somewhat li- quite limited by, by what's you know, potentially available. On the build side, um, you know, and I think another topic we can get into, certainly we saw product development here in the first quarter slow down. But behind the scenes, the queue just continues to build. Now, we've seen um, some liquidations uh, kick off uh, this year. So I think the overall net number of new products will be down um, on a net basis. But I think the new launches will continue to catch up as Again, we've started to see this in the past month, uh, kind of an ex- a reacceleration of, you know, new listings. And finally, I think on this topic, um, on the partnership front, um, you know, for those uh, smaller issuers, RIAs, um, other separately managed accounts that may be appropriate to flip into ETFs, even some alternative managers are also looking at ways to, you know, effectively convert this into an ETF structure, um, and, you know, I think the white label platforms as well, which I know has also been covered, um, you know, on the podcast here still attracts some attention. I know Goldman Sachs made a big splash with their ETF accelerator program announcement. Um, and so that has kind of renewed some interest in, um, you know, others, uh, who are again not in the ETF game, uh, right now as another quick path to enter. Um, so I think we're going to see more product, more issuers come to market. And, you know, again, that will spawn some some innovation.
1: All very interesting uh, topics. I guess let's go back to what you were saying in terms of ETF issuers looking at ways to turn up the volume uh, and, you know, potential acquisitions. I- I've been surprised we haven't seen more consolidation uh, over the past couple of years. I-, I just thought we would see more activity here. And I, I guess two questions. You mentioned the limited supply why is that? Because it seems like there's a lot of smaller issuers that have come into the space. They have seen at least a little bit of traction. And, uh, you know, is it just that they, they're not quite big enough or they don't have enough of a value prop to larger firms at this point in time? I, I guess talk more about that. And then I, I guess the other question I would have is, is the play here for um, the acquiring company, is it just simply scale scale? To continue to, to to you know to grow assets, have more scale, obviously lower costs. I mean, is it as simple as that, or is there more to
3: it? I think part of it is scale. Um, part of it is just speed to uh, market, or at least speed to to gaining that scale. So if you're able to acquire a, a fund with assets um, and ideally a track record, um, you know that basically gets you from point A to point B, you know, much quicker. Um, but, you know, the reality is that, you know, it, it's still, again, a, a, limited supply because I think some, you know, some platforms certainly are not for sale. I think some, uh, may be tripped up at the moment or have been tripped up due to valuations. Um, and I think some, you know, also, um, you know, are not necessarily that easy to, to sort of pull apart given the, whether it be the legal structure of the board or, or other, um, other, you know, other structural issues. So I think what most issuers or asset managers are doing is really kind of pursuing or trying to pursue a mashup, right Of you know we're going to grow assets organically. We you know may look for acquisitions to bolt on or or you know build the scale mate that you're mentioning. And I think more recently we've seen the hot trend of mutual fund to ETF conversions. Um, that has attracted a ton of interest from our clients. I think the reality is probably going to be somewhere in between, um, meaning, you know, the, the interest level is very high, but the reality on the ground is different because ultimately it does take a lot of work. Um, there are some headaches and costs um, that are associated with these conversions. So I think the threshold to convert a mutual fund to an ETF is high. So the larger asset managers out there are really looking across the spectrum. Um, to, to try to grow and compete in the ETF space, I mean, really across all these things. And, and, again, conversions are just another tool to accomplish that goal.
1: Ben, if we get a little more granular here and talk about um, specific product innovation and, and some of the things you're seeing, you, you know, I was thinking through the innovations we've seen in the industry just over the past two years or so. And, of course, you mentioned uh, mutual fund ETF conversions. We saw the, the the first of those a couple of years ago. And Let me rattle some of these other ones off, and this certainly isn't all inclusive, but we've seen the first Bitcoin futures ETFs, uh, the first single stock ETFs, single bond ETFs. There have been some pretty unique iterations of the uh, buffer ETFs. Uh, We recently saw these highly concentrated ETFs from uh, Roundhill, where where they're using swaps to get exposure and get around some of the uh, diversification rules. We saw the first nickel miners ETF, which I actually covered on the podcast last week. And I I, I could keep going here, but my question for you is this. And I I certainly don't expect for you to give us the details. uh, uh, As I know, you have (laughs) very highly confidential conversations with your your clients. But will we keep seeing stuff like this? Like, are there more things coming down the pike that – the industry uh, hasn't seen before? And I know that sounds a, a little cliche. I, I'm just always amazed at the uh, the creativity in the space. Is there more to come?
3: This is why I love ETS. I mean, we are where the actions at, Nate. Um, I, every time I think we've seen it all, um, you know, here we go with something else. And the industry seems to be remarkably sort of resilient um, in staying innovative. Um, So I think you rattled off a bunch. Um, We are seeing activity across, I think, all of the spaces you rattled off. I mean, certainly the um, option-based strategies continue to be hot, the covered call uh, type strategies, the the buffered strategies. Um, I think that has more legs. Um, and seems to be picking up steam. So we're seeing more product come across our platform and also new issuers um, looking to use options, um, you know, come to market. So I, I do see more innovation there. I think on the fixed income side, um, we also have more room to run. Um, further slices of the bond market, I think whether, whether it's active or, or sort of smart beta, which again, I you know, sort of consider really rules-based active, um, you know, has uh, quite a bit to go, especially at this point in the market cycle, where fixed incomes picking up, obviously, a, a good chunk of the market, maybe even in the more boring uh, sort of cash or, or sort of money market or cash equivalent or money market fund type ETFs. Um, you know, that uh, that is another interesting space, which we might see over the next, you know, six to 12 months, while rates remain high. So maybe boring is in, Um, but it could spark quite a bit of innovation there in the ETF industry and certainly something our clients are looking very closely at.
1: Somewhat on this topic of product innovation, you might recall the last time you joined me, uh, which was about a year ago, we talked about the expiration of this Vanguard share class patent. And now here we are only, what, about two weeks away from the actual expiration, at least last I saw. And so I'm curious as to whether you expect other issuers to, Pursue this in a meaningful way and perhaps you can start by just explaining the, the the structure high level But then I'm curious as to what you see as the future here
3: Yeah, fascinating topic um, and I think this is going to attract uh, and already is attracting a bunch of attention from the ETF industry um, And you know been talking to clients about this um, headed into this this expiry of the Vanguard patent And again what we're talking about here is is really the ability to launch an ETF share class off an existing mutual fund, hence, you know, sort of a, a quote unquote ETF share class. And this is something that has been the exclusive domain to Vanguard, um, given um, their patent, but also the SEC approval that was granted to them uh, uh, sort of many years ago. Um, and now that that is uh, coming up or that patent is expiring. Um, And we have seen the first filing um, in quite some time uh, become public um, to effectively ask the SEC for approval in anticipation uh, of the the Vanguard patent expiring uh, in a couple weeks. And it'll be very interesting to see what happens uh, here and and how the SEC views it. Um, You know, after talking to some, you know, uh, several different players in the industry, not just issuers, but, but, you know, councils, the exchange and others, um turning more bullish here that there may be a path um, for the SEC to approve, but, you know, it still remains uncertain uh, as to the guidelines and what those issues might be. But from an operational perspective at NY Mellon, I mean, we're doing this already. So, you know, the structure and the technology is in place. I mean, obviously, Vanguard's been in the market for years, but, you know, this structure exists in Europe and Canada. Um, you know, we're, we're currently supporting products there. Um, you know, so I think our our ability to support and the industry to support it and really scale this um, beyond Vanguard you know, across the industry really will come down to the, the ultimate guidelines. And obviously, uh, assuming the SEC approves, um, you know, needs to become clear to have a, a final answer on that. But, you know, feel feel confident that it's, it's not the operational infrastructure. It really, again, comes down to the disclosure um, that the SEC might require and, and sort of other requirements that they're going to put upon the issuers to you know ensure that you know, shareholders are treated equitably and, and and so on. But it'll be a very interesting space to watch over the next uh, several months. So,
1: if I'm hearing you correctly, let's assume the SEC does get comfortable with other issuers using this structure. You expect there to be a lot of interest here,
3: no doubt. I I think um, you know it could be a game changer um, and. There's no doubt that it would, again, provide yet another tool in the arsenal um, for asset managers um, or issuers of any kind, really, to come into the market. So I mentioned kind of this concept of buy, build, or partner, or you convert an ETF or a mutual fund to an ETF. Here, you could launch a share class off of a mutual fund, which just give another tool to enter the market. I think that... um again, back to my comment of it potentially being a game changer, I think would apply to a larger pool of assets, specifically around those uh, funds that hold, you know, qualified money or a large percentage of qualified money. Um, That really is a challenge from a conversion standpoint, um, but would make a great candidate potentially to launch Um, an ETF share class off of and and sort of benefit from all those assets and the scale that's currently in the fund um, from all those retirement assets. Now, the disclosure and the fees and and there are other things that will need to be considered. So it may not work for everybody, but it would certainly open up uh, a large uh, opportunity uh, for the ETF industry and certainly would, would again, I, I think, attract a lot of interest and frankly, a lot of issuers who would look to move forward with that.
1: Only a few minutes left here. I don't want to get into the regulatory weeds at all. But if you look at the SEC and what they're considering here, this is a, you know, a tried and true structure, right? It, we've, it's been around for a long time. We, we know it works. Is there biggest hangup on, on the tax side in that ETF investors could be hurt uh, tax-wise if there were significant outflows? Uh, you know, from from a fund after the underlying securities have run up, do you think it comes down to that, or is there more to it? Just because, again, this structure has existed for a long time, we know it works.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's look, it's it really is hard to speculate since we haven't seen um, anything definitive yet from the SEC. Um, but certainly, I, I think taxes obviously are one of the considerations, um, but it could cut both ways. Um, you know, uh, without getting into the weeds, I think certainly, as I think you were alluding to, there are scenarios where, um, you know, the ETF, um, you know, uh, sort of shareholders could potentially receive um, or, or get, get hit with some taxes because of activity in the mutual fund. Um, but the opposite also could be true in that the mutual fund shareholders, you know, uh, could benefit, which is to a large degree what we've seen with with certainly with Vanguard. I think there are other considerations as well. I think certainly around disclosure around the tax, uh, you know, potential tax ramifications for, for all, you know, shareholders. Um, but certainly another area of focus historically has been around the equitable treatment of um, you know, you know each uh, investor class. And I think you know certainly fees would would be under focus there in terms of the allocation of uh, fees um, to the right share class. So there are certain um, expenses that you know may be applicable to one or the other. And I think that's another uh, type of area that the SEC, um, may focus on going forward. Um, but again, from an operational perspective, uh, you know, if that is the issue, I, I think it's simply math uh, to sort that out, which which exists today. So it'll be very interesting to see, uh, you know, what those requirements and guidelines are. So we're, we're looking at it and keeping a close eye on it.
1: The other layer to this story, I, and I think something to watch, is if the SEC does not get comfortable with allowing other issuers to use the structure, I think you're going to see some, uh, you know, chirping that that's sort of giving Vanguard an unfair advantage. And I want to ask you to comment on that because I believe you service Vanguard ETFs. But I do think that that's another angle to the story that you're going to hear about that if the SEC does not get comfortable with allowing other issuers to to use this structure. And we've seen this in the past with uh, like leverage and inverse ETFs and some of the approvals there. But, um, you know, again, I think we all want a level playing field and uh, that will be a story. But Ben, we'll have to leave it there. Excellent stuff as always. You know I love these conversations. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me this week.
3: Great, thanks again, Nate.
1: That was Ben Slavin, Global Head of ETFs at BNY Mellon Asset Servicing. Growth and innovation,
0: two words that best describe the ETF industry. However, rapid growth and innovation creates a critical need for financial advisors and industry practitioners, education. Enter the ETF Institute, the first and only independent organization providing industry professionals and financial advisors with certification, education, and training on ETFs. Learn more about the certified ETF advisor designation by visiting CETF.org.
1: I'm now joined by Phil McInnes, Chief Investment Strategist at Avantis, who currently offers 18 ETFs, over $21 billion in assets. That's all been done in less than four years. They didn't launch their first ETF until September of 2019. It's simply a remarkable ETF success story. And Phil is now joining me from Austin, Texas. Phil, great having you back on the podcast.
4: Hey, thanks for having me. That uh, that pump up music had me going on an air guitar going
1: here. (laughs) Well, good. Well, look, let's uh, start with the obvious, which is the growth of the ETF business. And you know, I was looking yesterday when you and I chatted about three years ago to the day. Avantis had less than a billion dollars in assets, less than a billion dollars, which is just amazing to me. You're now, at, as I mentioned, well over uh, $20, 21 billion. So, just explain for us what's happened here. What would have been some of the key drivers?
4: Yeah it's it, it's been a it's been a heck of a journey, and, and we're having a lot of fun. Um, I think you know some of the the traction that we've gained. I mean, if you if you look, we've got, as you said, we have got twenty-one billion across the ETFs. Um, we've got six ETFs that are over a billion, so it's not just a single strategy that, that people are, are, are finding success with or enjoying. It's, it's really a, the suite of strategies, and um, that for us, uh, I think, really speaks to or what we appreciate about that is, you know, we're trying to help people build good portfolios, right? And so the, it's really important for us to kind of set and manage expectations really clearly up front, Um, obviously we want them to understand the strategy when we expect to do well when uh, we might lag but we really want them to understand how it fits in the asset allocation that they're building as well and so i think those conversations really have been resonating and you know you know the power of the, the etf structure better than anybody and so i think people are just continuing to recognize that and that it it should be playing a bigger and bigger role in in their clients portfolios
1: if you look at the history of the etf space we know that look originally it was built on the back of plain vanilla indexing but now we are seeing this real momentum behind transparent active etfs why is that like like what w- what's causing that traction especially if you compare it to just plain vanilla indexing and again plain vanilla indexing still doing just fine but there's clearly this momentum around transparent active so so what's driving that
4: yeah i think it's a, it's a couple of things because i think if you look at the shift to you know what I'll, what i'll say is is referred to as either passive or index based investing over the last it's more than several years now um, i really think that has as much to do just with fees as anything else right and so that's one piece is low fees right is is something that people find attractive for obvious reasons um, you know with with the strategies that we manage you know they range from between 15 to 36 basis points so we feel like it's a it's pretty good value that we can offer right with that daily active oversight that we have in the strategies but Still trying to offer some of the other benefits that I think they they see in index-based strategies, so things like broad diversification, things like low turnover, and then obviously the ETF vehicle, again, with, with tax efficiency. But I think, you know, and, and you kind of hit the nail on the head, if you go back to the inception of ETFs, right, up until a few years ago, if you wanted the ETF vehicle, index-based was your only option and so with transparent active you know i think we're what we're able to do is provide a lot of those same characteristics right kind of you line us up with uh some of the index-based strategies and again you look at either the number of names or the turnover or the expense ratios as i said those are all sort of in the range um but then we get to talk about how we think we can do a little bit better and uh as i said i mean i think that part is is really resonating with uh with investors as well
1: and i do want to uh Highlight cost specifically because I show your average ETF fee is about 23 basis points. And I believe your weighted average fee is even lower than that. And you you think about that. That's less than the industry average expense ratio and uh, substantially less than the average active ETF fee. I, I just it's amazing to me. And I was talking about this earlier with Vetify's Laura Krieger, how much fees have come down in the traditional active ETF space. In terms of, again, why active ETFs are resonating with investors right now, you know, again, you look at the inflows, they've had outsized inflows, the vast majority of new launches are active ETFs. How much do you think the market environment has played into that? How much is the market environment over the past couple of years playing into this shift to active?
4: I, I think it, it has to play some of a role. Um, so I think any time where you have, you know, you have volatility, you have heightened uncertainty, you have a downturn, um, people do, you know, they sort of sit back and say, uh, boy, I, I, I think I'd like to do something more. Right? And that can take a lot of paths, that can mean a lot of things, right? Uh, but just the idea of, uh, again, maybe somebody that is, is maybe looking at the portfolio a little bit more closely. Um, and this is not a knock-on index-based strategies. I'll, I'll say I think they were a great, you know, kind of innovation, but um, the idea of if you're going to rebalance once a year, right, which if you, there are some indexes out there that ETFs are tracking that they rebalance once a year uh, in terms of when they decide what a value stock is, what a growth stock is, what a, a large-cap stock is, or a, or a small-cap stock. And, you know, um we, we want to use up-to-date information to make decisions, right? So prices are changing every day. For us, that means expected returns are changing every day. And so that idea of, of as investors, you want to use up-to-date information and make decisions. That's a really important, uh, piece of, of our process. Um, and I think that, that's probably part of that reason. Uh, the other thing, you know, if, as soon as you start moving away really from, from the market and, and Vanguard put out a, a really interesting study a few years back looking at the growth of, of indexing. And there's really sort of two pieces of it, right? One is is the total market. Uh, the other is, I'll say, sort of market components, right? So whether that's sectors, whether that's a, a, a size range, whether that's a style. And so a lot more of the growth or the adoption has been in more what I'll call that component or segment area, right? It's not people just buying the entire stock market and, and leaving it alone. They're, they're putting together building blocks of, of different components. And so when you start diving in to a specific asset class and you start looking across different index providers, one thing you can find is that, you know, different indexes and and index families have different definitions for, again, how they define what a value stock is, how they define what a a growth stock is, um, and they have different rebalancing schedules, right, reconstitution schemes. So when you look at, you know, things that have the exact same label, right? You can have five or six indexes and ETFs that track those that have the same label of call it large value or small value. You can actually see some pretty significant dispersion in returns, right, over short term and and even medium and longer term. And so there, it kind of gets the idea of, well, if I've got six or seven definitions of what this asset class is, why should I pay somebody to track just one of them, right? That might be leaving something on the table.
1: Phil, this is perfect, because I thought for listeners who might not be familiar with the Avantis uh, approach and process overall, it might be good to take a look at at one of your ETFs to sort of compare and contrast to what whether it be indexing or other active ETFs are doing out there. And if I pull your most popular ETF, the Avantis U.S. Small Cap Value ETF, ticker AVUV, do do you want to just walk through the basics of that one and, and maybe how it does compare to some other small cap value ETFs that are on the market?
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that one definitely um, you know, it's it's been as you said, it's been quite popular. Um as I, I like all of our, our ETFs uh, um equally, right? They're sort of they're all my favorite children kind of a deal. Uh but with AVUV we've we have seen quite a bit of traction. And so um when we think about a, a small cap value ETF, so obviously we want to make sure it's small cap. Uh so this is is really focused on the US markets and th- this goes uh, really a Across the board, from when we think about managing strategies, if we have something that's labeled U.S., it's going to be 100% in the U.S., right? If we have something labeled emerging markets, it's going to be 100% in emerging markets. We want to have that goes back to another form of transparency. We want to make sure that we're remaining true to the style, uh, so that if an allocator chooses us, they aren't going to get surprised by you know what our results are. Um, so with with this one, it's it's all going to be in in small cap value. So. Uh, focused on the U.S., but the way we think about value is a little bit differently. If you look at a lot of um, value-based indexes, uh, what's really common is that they're pretty heavily relying on a single measure of value, right, something like price-to-book or maybe price-to-earnings. And that's fine, right? That's giving you some information. What we're looking to do, we want to make sure we're doing as we're building a value strategy, is that we aren't sort of over allocating or unintentionally allocating to companies that don't have sufficient quality or profitability, right? So when we think about value, we're looking for at the same time, we want companies that have a nice price multiple relative to the equity position in the company. We're also looking for good quality, good profitability. So we think about those two things together, right? So if you take the entirety of the small cap universe, what we're going to be focusing in on is that most attractive quartile when you look at Sort of low price relative to equity, we call that high adjusted book to market, and I'm happy to kind of get into some more details on that, and then high cash-based operating profitability. But it's basically good price, good profits together, is what we're looking for. And then we obviously want to make sure very well diversified at the company level. So there's around 700 stocks in the portfolio, uh, really making sure you know that we're we're spreading those uh, investments across as many names as we can while still. Uh, achieving the characteristics we're looking for. And then similarly, when you think about things like industries or sectors, we want to make sure we have sufficient, sufficient diversification there too. So we've got some other things in play just to make sure, um, again, it's, it's diversified. Uh, it's, it's got the turnover profile that we're looking for, but it really is a value strategy.
1: Phil, actually, the question that that raises for me, given what you just described, and uh, specifically when you talk about a focus on overweighting, you know, high-quality value, I I think really across all of your products, I'm just curious, how does AVUV compare to uh, AVSE, which is your quote-unquote plain vanilla, you know, U.S. small-cap equity ETF? Because, again, just with your methodology overall, some people may think those are pretty similar.
4: Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. So, and part of this gets into this idea of, I I mentioned sort of building blocks, right? So what we're looking to do is provide good building blocks for an asset allocation. And as you know, Nate, like advisors and and investors, they build portfolios different ways. So some, if you think about a small cap type allocation, they're going to want to split that. They're going to have maybe a, a manager on the growth side, a manager on the value side that they're blending together. Others might just have a single line item, right? They may have just allocated to a small blend sort of strategy and and you see that quite often as well. So when you think about AVUV and and its pursuit of what we call higher expected returns, right? It's really focusing in on that most attractive top quartile. If you look at something like AVSC, what we're wanting to make sure is that we give more of a sort of blend characteristics. It's still gonna lean a little bit value, but as, just as if you looked at, say, the Russell 2000 and the Russell 2000 value or the S&P 600 and the S&P 600 value, right, there's going to be some overlap in names, but one obviously plots a lot more blend. AVSC is sort of that way, right? So it's giving you more broad coverage across the small cap market, still kind of kicking out those companies that we think have a poor expected return profile. So we still expect to do better than just a, a passive index. Uh, but it's given you more of that, uh, I'll say, a small cap into style allocation. And then the other thing is it leans pretty heavily into micro caps. So if you look at sort of a breakdown between micro cap and small, it's got a pretty heavy dose in micro caps.
1: Phil, only a couple of minutes left here, and I'm going to switch gears on you. I, I wanted to make sure to ask you about this fund-to-fund structure, or in your case, the uh, ETF of ETF structure, because you launched the Avantis All Equity Markets ETF, ticker AVGE, last September. Uh, I show that already has over $150 million in assets. And then I saw you recently filed for four more of these fund-to-fund ETFs, which I know you can't speak to those directly, but from my perspective, it's pretty clear that Avantis believes in this concept uh, overall, Why do you think this is appealing or why why do you think advisors and investors will find this appealing?
4: Well, I think I think if you look at AVGE and we've we've, you mentioned it with what we've seen in terms of flows and traction in a really short amount of time, they're kind of voting with their with their dollars, so to speak, as it's been popular. And um, and we're very happy to see that. Uh, it, to me, it's building on what is an already powerful structure, right? We, it, and you know it better than anybody else. The, the ETF structure is, is phenomenal for, for investors. And this idea of, you know, and, and you, you think about the growth of, say, model portfolios and those kinds of things, right, where you're giving somebody an idea of more of an overall asset allocation and how you could blend different ETFs together uh, to achieve that allocation in a, in a pretty efficient way. What this is doing is kind of trying to combine those two elements. So if if you say, you know, you don't want to have 10, 11, 12 ETFs that you're needing to rebalance between and trade and everything else, with AVGE, what you can do is you can get basically our best thinking for a global allocation, right, a global allocation for a U.S.-based investor, and that's going to have basically be expressing our philosophy. Um, you can get that all in one wrapper, and we're able to deliver an extremely tax-efficient uh, kind of experience because... In contrast to, let's say, a mutual fund of funds, right, that's going to be prone to having pretty significant capital gains distributions, with the ETF of ETF structure, we're able to do that rebalancing in an extremely tax-efficient way, so that that end-holder, you don't have to worry about the rebalancing, right? You buy one line item, and you're getting uh, all that you're looking for in your portfolio.
1: I think you described all of that perfectly. The one question I always have around the fund-to-fund structure, and specifically in the ETF space, is regarding advisor concerns over how uh, these ETFs might present to clients. So, for example, uh, if there's, let's say, a moderate allocation ETF, my sense is... Uh, many advisors are hesitant to invest their clients into that one ETF because then it might look like the advisor isn't doing anything, e- even though you and I know, as you just described, the ETF structure can offer tax benefits, you know, cost benefits, et cetera. And, of course, I, I would make the case that advisors should be providing value outside of just portfolio management. But in, in any event, I-, I guess I'm just curious, have you heard anything like that when visiting with advisors? Is that a concern of theirs at all?
4: I, it, it comes up every now and again, but I think, you know, um, we have the privilege of working with a, a lot of very, very talented uh, financial advisors and, and wealth managers. And um, just about everybody who I sit across the table from has a very compelling value proposition. Uh, as you said, investments are a pretty key component to that, right? They are sort of the engine that's, uh, that's helping that investor to hopefully their, their goals over the longer term. But it's part of a much bigger picture. And so I think you know in in this case, right, what we're trying to do is is give people options. because if somebody wanted to basically look at the underlying allocation of AVGE, make a few tweaks to it themselves, uh, or you know kind of follow it pretty closely, they can do that, right? They can do that, and they can do the trading and the rebalancing, or maybe take some opportunities uh, to have a little bit more flexibility on tax loss harvesting themselves for that specific client. They they have that option, uh, but what we're trying to do, you know, we we did get a lot of um, a lot of actually requests for this kind of an idea of if we gave you everything, what would it look like, and could you do it in one fund? And I think that kind of gets back to how an advisor or an investor wants to sort of spend their time. And so if they know that something like this is able to achieve all the investment goals they're looking for, uh, but it frees them up to go focus on other things, right? That's incredibly beneficial and incredibly powerful.
1: Well, and again, all we have to do thus far is look at the numbers with AVGE. You know, as you mentioned, investors are clearly voting with their money. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that trumps everything in the ETF space, which is a meritocracy. The proof is in the pudding. But, uh, Phil, congratulations on uh, all the success. I think you're going to be at like $50 billion next time we chat. But thank you for joining uh, well, me this week.
4: I, well, if if the if the trajectory kind of works that way of every time I speak with you from the last time we doubled, I'm, I'm happy to be on next week. You
1: know? <laughs> Phil, thank you very much. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Nate. That was Phil McInnes, Chief Investment Strategist at Avantis. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Amplify ETFs. If you would like to learn more about Amplify ETFs, you can visit AmplifyETFs.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Vetify's Dave Nodig, and this is going to be an absolute blast. So we're going to put a boatload of ETF ideas through our little uh, ETF shark tank. So you may have seen I asked all of you out on Twitter for one ETF that you wished existed but doesn't, and you came through. So I can't wait to go through those with uh, Dave. Until then, have a great week, everyone.